Good morning, everyone. And welcome to this beautiful fall day, spring day. Not quite sure what kind of weather we're having, but it's a glorious day because we are in the house of the Lord. And we are looking at John chapter 6 this morning. Uh, and in John chapter 6, we have this great event called the feeding of the 5,000. Now, besides the resurrection story, the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection story, this is the only other major event of Christ's life that's recorded in all four Gospels. So there's an emphasis. The Lord wants us to pay attention to the message of what's happening here in the feeding of the 5,000. There also is the feeding of the 4,000 that takes place in Matthew and in Mark. So there's two events that take place in the ministry of Christ during his three years where there is feeding taking place. And um, that hooked me right away when I was a young believer. Anytime that we're talking about food, I'm thinking this is exciting, this is amazing, because I imagine without knowing the story as a young believer, I thought maybe Jesus had made ribs, and I realized, okay, he probably did not make pork ribs, being that they were still under the Old Testament uh, dietary laws at the time. Uh, but then I thought, of course, he'd have pizza, Nah, not really, no pizza, no steak, no steak. What they had was some barley loaves and some fish. And if you're not quite sure what barley loaves are, we're going to talk about it. Um, imagine sawdust baked into a brick that was hard as a rock, and you just had to just chew it, chew it, chew it, crunch it, crunch it, crunch it, and drink down some water in order to make it palatable. Sound exciting? Well, he's going to give you as much as you want to eat. So there's, there's seconds, thirds, and fourths available. But this all starts with the basic premise that we've seen in the book of John, that Jesus, the Messiah, is the overcoming God king. There is no one like him. The Old Testament had lots of examples of what he would be like, and we had lots of examples from Adam to Noah to Abraham and Isaac to the kings and the judges and the prophets. They all displayed a Christ-likeness in that what Christ would be, but they were not Christ. They had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They had not lived a perfect life. So Christ came and fulfilled all the examples we see in the Old Testament that point to a Savior, a Messiah, someone who would take our place and pay for our sins, and then give us righteousness and holiness that would usher us into a beautiful, lifelong, eternal relationship with God the Father. And only Christ can accomplish that. You cannot accomplish that. No one that you know can accomplish that. The greatest people in all of history cannot accomplish that. You cannot even accomplish that if you combine all your effort, all of humanity's effort cannot accomplish what this one person, Jesus the Messiah, the overcoming God King, did on our behalf. Now, throughout the stories that Scripture records for us in the life of Christ, through all the Gospels and the epistles and all the illustrations and allusions to it in the Old Testament, there's always this question that's raised, who is Jesus? And people have been trying to answer that question since the beginning of God's plan. Who is this 
one who would crush the serpent? Who is this one who would be the substitute lamb? Who is this one who would be an overcoming king? Who is this one who would be a humble servant? Who is this one who would be crucified? Who is this one who would rise from the dead? Who is this one who would ascend into heaven? Who is this one who would come ruling and reigning with all authority and establish his kingdom here on earth? Who is this? Who is Jesus? And I would say that there is probably no greater question for you to wrestle with than that question. Who is Jesus? In fact, he even asked that question of his disciples later on in his ministry. Who do you say I am? Who do other people say I am? And people said, well, you could be Elijah, you could be John the Baptist, you could be one of the prophets, you could be David. And Peter answers it, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Pinpoint accuracy about who Christ is. But throughout his ministry and throughout the ages, people have come up with all sorts of different ideas on who Jesus is. From, ah, he was a good moral teacher, to he didn't even exist, he's a fragment of your imagination, he's not real, to he's the son of God fully incarnate, unique, and capable and able of saving someone to the utmost. And so we're going to see today in this story, which has really nothing to do with food. It has nothing to do with a young boy who had a lunch to share. It had nothing to do really with how many loaves and fish were there. It has everything to do with who is Christ? Who is this one who is incredible, in teaching and confounding the wisest of religious scholars, he confuses them and points them to Scripture and says, it's all about me. He heals people from sickness immediately right there and immediately in the distance. Who is this guy? And sometimes we put our expectations upon him. We want him to be like this. We want him to do this. We want him to be this. We want him to accomplish this in our life. And we have to surrender all of those things we want Jesus to be and accept with joyous excitement of who he really is because who he is is far greater than who you want him to be. You do not need a Santa Claus that gives you every wish you want. You may want someone who gives you wishes on end but he gives you something far greater than your wishes. He gives you something far greater than health or wealth or comfort. He gives you a relationship with the Father. And everything he does points us to that, that he overcomes our sin nature, that he overcomes the division between us and God, that he grants us a relationship with the Father through his work. Everything points to that. And so as we see this story unfold in the first four verses, we just get a little bit of a, a setting to the stage. He has just come and talked with uh, religious leaders in chapter 5. He did the healing in chapter 5. He talks about how the Old Testament talks about him. A whole Old Testament. Moses reveals the nature of Christ in the Old Testament. And people are flocking to him. And so in verse 1 of chapter 6, the first four verses, we read this. After this, that's everything that's happened in chapter 5, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. 
and a large crowd was following him. Why were they following him? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So the first impression that people have is he's a miracle worker, and he is. He works miracles. But they were following him and excited about him and wanted to see more fascinating things that he could do. Once in a while on YouTube, I uh, follow this little rabbit trail from the algorithm, and I watch a magician doing a card trick. And before I know it, half an hour later, I've watched 10 different card tricks, and I'm just amazed at how they can so subtly manipulate. Now, it's not truly magic. It's just illusion and practice, tons of practice. That's a card trick. And, and you get engrossed by seeing that magician going, how did they do it? How did they do it? And I feel people were looking to Jesus with that same wonderment of, how does he do this? Is he going to do another one? Can you do that again? Can you do a bigger one? Can you do it to me? I'll volunteer. Me, me, me. And they are flocking to him, surrounding him, pressing on him, not giving him a moment, moment's rest. They are pursuing him because they want to see signs and wonders. They want to see miracles. They want to see the newest expression of amazement. They want to be awed and filled with wonder at the stuff he does. Not him, but the stuff he does, what he can accomplish. They cannot figure it out. They want to know, how does he do this? Can you do it again? So they're following him. They're pressing in on him, a large crowd, because they want to see more signs and wonders that he's doing. And, of course, he's doing it to the sick. Verse 3 Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples, kind of an overlooking area to where the crowds were forming by the sea. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So we're told a little bit about the timing, and if you remember back to chapter 3 and chapter 2, the cleansing of the temple and his time with Nicodemus, there was also a Passover moment there in Jerusalem, a time of great feasting and celebration. So it could be that almost an entire year has passed from the time of John chapter 2 and 3 and here in John chapter 4 and 5, or uh, excuse me, John chapter 6. So a good amount of time has passed. What has he been doing during that time? He's been doing exactly what he's been doing in chapter 4 and 5, talking to the crowds, healing people, talking to the religious leaders, convicting them of their sin, and just pressing them on the truth of who he is and what he's revealed in Scripture He's pressing them with the fact of, who am I? Am I just a miracle worker? Am I just a really good scholar? Or am I something different that's been promised of old in the Old Testament that I would lead my people from captivity to freedom? Done not through miracles, but through the giving of my own life and the taking up of my own life in resurrection. So they were following him. He gets a vantage point. And then in verse 5, we see a problem present itself. Starting in verse 5, he says, Lifting up his eyes, then he, seeing a large crowd, was coming towards him. Jesus said to Philip. So this big crowd of people coming towards him, turns to one of his disciples and says, Where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? I have to stop here for a second. Jesus has been for 
probably a year been on the go, teaching, walking, preaching, healing people, um, being a miracle worker in front of people, presenting them with the truth. And for a solid year, he has been surrounded by people. And what is his concern when he sees a crowd of people coming towards him? His concern is, are their needs met? They've got to be hungry because they followed me from the other side of the lake. And there's a lot of them. Where are they going to find something to eat? As hard as it is to believe, there was no McDonald's back then. There wasn't. What did they do to eat? It might have been a Sunday, so Chick-fil-A would have been closed. They wouldn't have had Chick-fil-A either. Whatever it was is that there was no immediate place where they could go and buy food. There wasn't a shopping center. You wanted food, you raised it yourself, you baked it yourself, and you may have been able to barter with others for some of it. But for thousands of people, there was no catering program available that would feed that many. So he looks up, I think with great compassion and great concern, says, where are we going to get bread? Philip, got an answer? And so Philip, uh, in, in, in verse 6, and Jesus said to him to test him, for he knew what he would do. See, Jesus was presenting Philip with an opportunity to say, this is way beyond my means. This is way beyond everybody's means. No one has a solution for this. Because I can imagine all of a sudden those solution problem-solving people are all thinking in their mind, okay, we could do this, 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 this. They were coming up with a plan, an organizational chart. Everybody had duties, and they were ready to charge forward. We got this solved, Jesus. But Jesus gave Philip this question knowing they had no ability, no capacity to solve it themselves. They had only one recourse. Jesus, it is not humanly possible to do this. We need to turn to you, the Messiah, the overcoming God King. And while this is not healing people, while this is not raising people from the dead, this is just feeding people. Can you do that? Can you feed us? I think that's what Jesus was looking for. But Philip's response and answer in verse 7, Philip answered him, it would cost 200 denarii worth of bread, and that would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, that 200 denarii, there's lots of different ways to understand that. There's not a real solid system on how much a denarii was worth. It basically was worth a day's to a week's wage, somewhere within that range, a day to a week's wage. So you're looking at pretty much the good work of a year or more to get people some flat, hard, <laughs> barley bread, and then Philip says, even if we spent that much money, close to a year's worth of wages, we would not have enough food. Everyone would get just a little crumb, just a little speck of it, and it wouldn't be enough for them. They've walked all day. They have followed you from the other side of the sea, the other side of the lake. We can't do it. Then one of his disciples in verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, oh, Remember the organizational chart. Okay, everybody take something and we'll get it done. Everybody take a little part and we'll accomplish it. Everybody figure out a system and we'll do it. So Andrew was already on that system and said to him, uh, there's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? 
So already that plan of, okay, we need to feed these people, Jesus said it. Philip goes, it's going to cost a lot of money. Andrew, probably the go-getter of the group, said, hey, I've already found out a solution. We got a young boy who has his lunch with him. Can we do anything with that? And of course, from their perspective, no, Jesus can't do anything with five loaves and two fish. That's impossible. You can't feed that many people with so few provisions. So few provisions. So little. What possibly can the Messiah, the overcoming God King, do with something so paltry? So little, so insignificant. Like, let's not even mention it, but that's all we got. Can he possibly accomplish something with so little? Every time we put that challenge to the Lord, can you do something with me? I have so little. Can you do something with them? They have so little. Can you do something with us? We have so little. Every time we put that challenge before God, he answers it exactly the same way. It does not matter how little faith you have. It does not matter how little money you have. It does not matter how ill you are. It doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are, how tall you are, how short you are. It doesn't matter anything about you. Because when you are placed in God's hand, the only thing that matters is the hand you are placed in. See, our faith does not have to move mountains on its own, but our faith is in the one who created the mountains. That is where the strength of our faith is. That is the strength of our endurance, the strength of our ability. Not in what we have, but who we put our faith in, Jesus Christ, who moves mountains, creates mountains, rises up mountains, destroys mountains. And this is the story the disciples were supposed to learn at this moment. And it's the story that we're supposed to learn and hold on to. He continues and says, this is all we've got. And so Jesus says in verse 10, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the, man sat, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had taken their fill, he told his disciples, gather the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. tells him to get ready to eat, has him sit down. And then, as custom for Hebrews, is they sat in groups of generally 10 families or 10 heads of household. So there'd be 10 here, the man and all of his household, another 10, the man and all of his household, and so on and so forth. So they would be able to very quickly count the number of 10s that they had. And they determined that there was a total of 5,000 men not counting the women and children. There could easily have been 20 to 30,000 people 
in this crowd. All they did was count the number of tens they had. You thought 5,000 was a lot of people to feed. He's feeding 20 to 30,000 people. That is a huge crowd. All of a sudden it became a number that is very unimaginable, uh, uh, very unmanageable even for the best of caterers. You told me how many were showing up? 5,000? Now you got 25,000? You don't have enough to prepare for that type of situation except you don't have to prepare for it. It's not dependent upon how much you have or how little you have. It's dependent upon God. Is 5,000 or 25,000 too much for God to handle? No, he handles everything. He handles the most distance of galaxies that you've never even seen before and we may never discover before his return. He handles it controls it, every atom, every molecule, every speck of this universe. He controls and sees and understands and manages and keeps alive and moving. So 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 people to feed, it's not a problem for him. The lack of resources or the plenty of resources does not matter to God. He's not dependent upon what you have or what you don't have. His work is dependent upon his word and his ability. And his word is true. And his ability, his ability is extreme, unmeasured, unaltered by weakness or famine. So he sits them down, blesses the loaves in verse 11, gives thanks, distributes to them, and we're told in verse 12 through the end of that section that when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five bar barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So whether it's 5,000 to 30,000 people, they had gotten their fill to the point that no one could eat anymore. I think we've all been in situations, maybe in a home, maybe at a holiday, maybe at a, a reception, or maybe at uh, some type of picnic where the word goes down the line to the adults, all right, don't take anything until everybody else had something to eat. All right, let, let, let the guests go first, let, let the young, youngins go first, whatever it might be. We've all had those situations where we're like, ah, I don't know if we have enough food. Jesus didn't have any worry, is there enough food? It was plentiful for everyone. They had an excess. So when God provides, he provides to an excess, not just the bare minimums that everybody has a crumb, but he provided by example. The wholeness of God is available to the people, and when the wholeness of God is available to the people, it overwhelms them to where they can't possibly accept anymore. That is how gracious and how able our God is in meeting our needs when he has that compassion and look upon us. So how do you think the people responded to that? How was their reaction? There's bounty of food, a lot of leftovers, more than anyone could eat. And verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, 
Remember, they're looking for signs and wonders. They're looking for miracles. And so they see this guy, and probably some of them couldn't even hear him because they're up on a hill, 20,000 people deep, probably lots of conversations going on. He holds up these few loaves, breaks it and blesses it, starts handing it out, and everyone gets a piece. They're thinking, I should have been first in line. I'm the last in line. I'm never going to get anything. They got so much, they couldn't eat it all. And they saw that. And they're like, yes, it happened. We saw him do a miracle. But they didn't see the heart of that miracle. They saw their needs met, their belly full, and a miracle performed in front of them. And so they said, when they saw that, they saw this sign, they said, this is indeed the prophet whom is to come into the world. Now, they were thinking of Deuteronomy 18, and we don't have time to look at Deuteronomy 18, but I would encourage you, one thing that you take from this message, write down Deuteronomy 18 and read that chapter because Moses goes into great detail about the prophet yet to come. And he's not talking about one of the Old Testament prophets. He's talking about Jesus. And I imagine those people that day seeing that going, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. Now they are still unsure what that all means for them, but they're recognizing this is a gift from God. This is not just a magician showing up performing magic for us. This is someone who has command over five loaves and two fish to feed a multitude of people. How can that be? It's not sleight of hand. It's because he's the Messiah, the overcoming God King, and there is nothing that can stand in his way because he is the creator and sustainer of all. The people have another reaction. They announce that he is indeed the prophet. And then they say this. Perceiving then that they were to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I can't fault them for this response. They want to be around Jesus. They want Jesus to lead. They want Jesus to usher in freedom from the Roman oppression that they had been under for decades. They wanted freedom. They wanted to be back in the days, the good old days of David as king, the glorious ruling and reigning of their kingdom. They wanted to see Israel important again, and they wanted Jesus to be the king. He can do it. He can do it. But they had a very selfish reason for that. They didn't want it because their sin was grieving them with guilt and shame. They wanted it because the guy can feed us. The guy can do miracles. The guy must be powerful. They weren't claiming him as king over their hearts, over their souls, over their lives. They wanted him to be king of Israel as the king of Israel of olden days. Jesus perceives that, and he hightails it out of there. He doesn't want any part of that. It's not his time. It's not his mission. It's not his goal. It's not why he's there. He's there to be a suffering servant. One day he'll come back as king, but he's there to be a suffering servant that people may be freed from their sins. People wanted a leader that solved their perceived problems. They wanted a leader who would solve their perceived problems. They had a problem. They were hungry. Jesus fulfills it. Great. Someone's sick. Jesus heals them. Awesome. 
These Pharisees are really stuck up about how much they know about religion. Jesus puts them in their place. Yes, we need Jesus. They weren't looking to him as a savior. They were looking to him simply and only as someone who was powerful. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it says, And Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and makes us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is how Scripture describes Jesus as king, one who overcomes and frees us from our sins. That is the need we have. Not hunger, not health, not long life, not a new job, not a new family, none of that. We don't need that. What we need is freedom from our sin, and that is what Jesus, the king of kings and Lord of lords, accomplishes with perfection. He does not lack at saving us and freeing us from sin. That is why he came. That is what he accomplishes. And that is the miracle that he performs in our hearts every time someone is saved and forgiven of their sins. Jesus demonstrates himself as king. A king according to his terms to solve not a perceived problem we have, but the real problem we have. You see, we go to God with lots of perceived problems. I need this, I want 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 this. And we inundate him with all of these wishes and wants and complaints about how our life is, and we want different and better. And Jesus has to remind us, I hear you. I understand what you are asking me. But why are you asking me for something so little, so insignificant, so really meaningless? Why don't you ask me about what you really need? Your sins forgiven, your heart restored, a thriving relationship with the Father, a love of him, a love for one another, forgiveness and mercy and contentment and peace in your heart. Why don't you ask for you what you really need? You keep asking me for things that are insignificant. Ask me the big one. Will you save me? And every, every time in Scripture, someone cries out, save me. Jesus is there and says, yes. Not only will I save you, I am able to save you to the utmost. He concludes in Revelation 19, verse 13 and 16. This is about Jesus. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. On his robes and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And yes, it is a gory detail that there is blood on him. And it is a gory detail that we celebrate the sacrifice in his body and his blood. And yes, it is a gory detail to think of sacrifice on a cross. But that is how big of a need we have to solve. 
the need we have is life and death. And the gift that Christ provides for us is his life in exchange for our death. And we get to celebrate that this morning. And as the elders come up and the band comes up, I want us to be reminded of how solemn this is, how necessary it is that his blood was shed and his body was broken. And if you see that and acknowledge that and know that to be yours, then I totally invite you, as the elders pass the cups by and the plate by, take it. And when you hold on to that and we take it together, it will remind you once again of the costliness of your sin and how much Jesus accomplishes it. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this cup, and we pray, Lord, that we would look to you not just simply as an answer man to give us help in life, but that we would look to you as our Savior, the one who redeems us from our sins and sheds his own blood, that we might be one with you. Help us, Father, to look at you as truly the King of kings and Lord of lords. And don't let us just come to you with wishes and wants in our life when we feel we need more. Father, satisfy our soul with the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.